This morning, we're finishing up our study of David's life. We've been looking at this series really since the month of January, and uh, been several months looking through various portions of the Old Testament and seeing some of the things that were done in David's life and through uh, the, the work and the ministry that the Lord entrusted to him. And in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, we're going to see an example of what it means to establish a legacy of faith and the ways in which we have the opportunity to pass on our faith to those who come after us. We're going to be looking in two portions of Scripture primarily this morning. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 2. So if you'd turn there with me, I'm just going to read a few verses in 1 Kings 2, and then we're going to come back and revisit them in a few minutes. And then I'm going to jump over to 1 Kings chapter 3, so the the chapter that comes right after that is uh, where we'll continue. But this is what it says, starting with... 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, and it's speaking of when David passed away, and it says, then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Now, if you would jump over to 1 Kings 3, starting with verse 5. And in 1 Kings 3, verse 5, it says this, "'At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, "'Ask what I shall give you.' And Solomon said, "'You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness.'" and an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of, my, of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or, counter, or counted for multitude." Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of your word together this morning. We're so grateful, Lord, that you've given us access to it, and that we have the opportunity to see the things that took place at the end of David's life, and also the way the baton was passed to his son Solomon. We're grateful for the things that are referenced in in this portion of Scripture that give us an example of what it looks like to establish a legacy of faith, to pass that on, to encourage those who come after us to understand what it looks like to follow you. So, Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our minds and our hearts to understand what we're about to read. We pray that we would learn lessons from it that point our hearts directly toward you and help us to understand a little bit more about the life we live and the legacy that we leave. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. We commit this time to you now and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the passing of a respected leader or a loved one, when we have that sort of thing happen during the course of our life, I think most of us would admit that that's one of the most challenging things in life to deal with. I think for most of us, It's probably likely that at some point during your childhood, that was the first time you ever experienced the loss of a loved one. 
Uh, on rare occasions, this is an experience that we face later in life, but for most people, that's something they experience when they're a child for the very first time, and it can be very challenging to process. I was actually reading a book very recently that included kind of a brief life story of the author, and the reason I say a brief life story is he still, by God's grace, hopefully got many years ahead of him because uh, he was writing this story in his 30s, so it was kind of his life story up to his mid-30s, so his story is still very much developing, but he was describing a season of life that took place in his mid-20s in the portion of, of his book that I was reading not that long ago. And he mentioned that the patriarch of his family, his grandfather, had passed away. And he talked about that experience. He said that experience had a very profound effect on him. And it really changed a lot of things about his day-to-day -day life going forward. He said he was highly aware of the fact that many of the blessings that he enjoyed during the course of his formative years were directly tied to the wisdom and the hard work and the others-centered decisions that his grandfather made for the overall benefit of their family. And that many of them could acknowledge that many of the benefits and blessings that they experienced were because of the decisions that this particular man had made. Now, I think it's a very beautiful thing when you can directly identify the generational impact that a single life has had on the people who are born in subsequent generations. Sometimes you can really notice that. And apparently in this particular case, that was definitely uh, this man's perspective. And when you look at David and you look at the different things that took place during the course of David's life, I think one of the things that he makes abundantly clear is the fact that David certainly wanted to have that kind of impact on the generations that came after him. He wanted to have that kind of impact. He spent a considerable amount of time contemplating the promise that God had made to him about his royal lineage and what was going to take place after his natural days were complete. And, and, and even though David was a fallible man, and you could see a lot of high points in David's life, and you could see a lot of low points, so you could certainly say, yeah, he's a fallible man. I actually think those things are purposely put in Scripture so we don't idolize people like David. We're, we're being shown that he's very much human, just like you and, and me. Um, but even though he was a fallible man, I think it could be said that he made the attempt to set up his descendants for success. He celebrated their wins. He grieved when they went in the wrong direction. And uh, he wanted to see them do well. And the portion of Scripture we just read, and I'm going to reread it for us here in just a moment, tells us about David's days on earth coming to an end. Again, it says in 1 Kings 2, starting with verse 10, it says, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. And then it tells us about the baton being passed. It says, So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. That's how it describes this baton being passed. So after 40 years of serving as king, and by the way, I don't know if you've ever taken the time, this is, I, I realize what I'm about to suggest is a very, very boring thing, but pick whatever country you want that has a monarchy or a series of, of presidents, and uh, look for a video. You can often find these things on YouTube. I actually just watched one this week about, about England and the history of the monarchy in England. And it's very interesting to see the, the people that serve for different periods of time. Some people serve for as short as a year. Some people serve for over 50 years. And so it kind of goes back and forth. And Scripture reveals to us related to David's reign that David spent 40 years serving as king. That's a good long period 
of time. And then he died, and the kingdom was transferred to his son Solomon. We don't know the exact age that Solomon was at the time that the kingdom was transferred to him, but he was a young man at the time. Most people seem to speculate that he was somewhere on either side of 20, maybe a little bit before 20, maybe a little bit after 20, maybe right on the dot 20. Those are our best guesses. But at 20 years old, roughly, Solomon becomes king of Israel, and by the grace of God, we're told that his kingdom was made strong and his leadership was firmly established among the people. And I look at things like this, and I can't help but wonder what it was like for him to assume that kind of responsibility and all that would be involved in trying to lead a kingdom at such a young age. I don't think that that would be a very easy thing. I don't know what your personality was like when you were 20. I don't know what your personality was like when you were younger than 20. I could tell you of myself growing up, I had a personality type that wanted to be thought of as older than I was. If you told me, you know, if I was like 14 and 15, and you told me, I thought you were like 17 or 18, you were like my best friend ever, right? I always wanted people to think I was older than I was. I don't still feel that way, by the way. That changed. I don't know when that changed, but somewhere along the way it changed. And, um, but I remember growing up, I, I just wanted to be thought of as older. I wanted adults to trust me with tasks and responsibilities that that they wouldn't typically entrust to someone of a young age. That actually made me feel quite good. Maybe some of you have a similar personality to mine. And I would, even, uh, I would even say that some of that feeling that I experienced at that age came from a genuine desire to serve. But I also think, if I'm honest with you, that part of it was also connected to how I wanted to be seen in the eyes of others. I wanted adults to treat me like I was one of them. I have to give you, I'll mention this because this might impact the way you treat some of the young people here in our church. I want to give credit to my home church uh, up in the town of German, Pennsylvania. Uh, One of the things I have to say about the men of that church, particularly when I was a young teenager, they always treated me like one of the men. And it had a big impact on me. They didn't treat me like I was some kid. They treated me like I was one of the men. And I remember noticing at the time that they were being very intentional about it. So I'm just planting that as a seed uh, for you ladies and for you men, you know, to treat the young people in in such a way that they feel like you're encouraging them to step up and uh, that you see them in in a respectable way in your own eyes. It will mean something to them. And I, I have to tell you that At that season of life, when I looked at people in leadership, I thought leadership seemed kind of glamorous. Have you ever had that thought in your mind that leadership might be kind of glamorous, you know, it might be kind of special, might be uh, just like something that just seems so amazing, right? Leadership just seems like it'd be great all the time, right? Like to be in leadership. Here's what I've learned since. Uh, and And by the way, I think all believers eventually should come to understand this, but I think real leadership is not meant to be glamorous. I don't think it's meant to be glamorous. In fact, I would contend that if you're in leadership and it feels glamorous, that you probably aren't actually leading. I I think probably what's happening is you might be serving as a figurehead, and, uh, and you may be getting credit for the work that other people are doing in that figurehead position, but real leadership is not really glamorous. The real essence of biblical leadership is not glamour, it's actually service. Biblical leadership we're going to live out what Scripture teaches. It's, it's a kind of leadership that looks to Jesus as its ultimate example. If the Lord entrusts you with any responsibility, any influence, any leadership, if He raises you up to a position in your work, in your family, in a corporation, in, in the community, politics, anything, 
It's got to look like Jesus if it's going to be anything of lasting value. And the kind of leadership that Jesus demonstrated during the course of his earthly ministry was a form of leadership that demonstrated a heart of service. So when you think of real leadership, always equate that with service. And by the way, um, I'll even say this like in the marriage context. You know, a lot of times when I'm I'm doing pre-marriage counseling with couples, we'll come to portions of Scripture, like it says in Ephesians chapter 5, which starts talking about a husband's role of leadership in the home. And I've seen some people read that portion of Scripture in such a way where they think, sweet, right? That sounds great. And then you look at it and it's like, yeah, what it's saying is you should be willing to die for your wife every day. Die for her every day. You know, think about, think about what Jesus did for you. The reason he demonstrated love for you that you feel so warm about is the fact that he died for his church. He didn't puff himself up. He sacrificially served for the benefit of his church. And so since Jesus was willing to serve that way, if he was willing to do hard things and receive criticism at times from people who didn't really like his decisions, and serve people without the expectation of getting something equal in return. I think that's also worth noticing. When Jesus served people, he wasn't expecting they would give him something equal in return for the service that he offered them, because there's nothing we could offer him that would be equal in return for what he's done for us. But Christ-like leadership, it involves humility. It involves a willingness to suffer and make sacrifices for the benefit of other people, even at great personal cost to yourself. That's what real leadership looks like. You would be willing to sacrifice and suffer for other people, even at great personal cost to yourself. Let me give you two examples from Scripture that show you and show me what leadership really looks like from the perspective of Christ. From Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 3, we're told this. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And by the way, when it's saying grasp, it's talking about this idea of selfishly held on to, saying he's not holding on to that in a selfish way. Even though he's God in the flesh, he's not holding on to that in a selfish way, he's being generous with with who he is. So it says, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's nothing meant to be glamorous about that description of Christ's sacrificial service. There's nothing meant to be glamorous about this form of leadership and the kind of leadership that Jesus demonstrated during the course of his earthly ministry. You basically see him saying, I'm God, come in the flesh to humanity, and yet I'm going to offer myself as a servant to them, even though many will not appreciate a single thing that I'm doing on their behalf. And then you look at what Jesus did in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. There it says this, it says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, by the way, notice that it's saying that, that Judas had already got it in his mind to betray Jesus, And Jesus is about to do what he does here 
also for Judas, who hasn't left the room yet. So Jesus already knows what Judas is about to do, and yet Jesus is about to serve Judas the same way he serves the other disciples. But it says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The custom of the, the age, what it was like at that point, the person of lowest rank would wash your feet when you came into a home. The person who had no status was the one who would wash your feet. And if you keep in mind, people were wearing you know, sandals and they're in roads that aren't paved, it's muddy, it's, it's filled with mud, it's filled with animal waste, all sorts of things. And so when you're washing someone's feet, you're really getting your hands dirty. That's the kind of leadership that Jesus demonstrated. Also, demonstrating a sacrificial service, uh, spirit of service to someone like Judas, who was out to get him. It's kind of an amazing thing, isn't it? But that's what he demonstrated. And that's an example that Scripture encourages us to follow. And I come back to what the Scripture tells us, our main Scripture today, when it talks about Solomon following David as king. You have, you have Solomon now in a position of leadership. And here's the thing. When you're in a position of leadership, you could use, especially in a position like Solomon was in, you could use that to bring fame to your own name if you would like. And that's how some people would use a position like that. You'd use that to bring fame to your own name. It wouldn't be very difficult to do so. Or you could use it to bring benefit to the people that you serve. Those are the two mindsets that you get the opportunity to have. Fame to your own name or benefit to the people that you're trying to serve. And I love reading about the heart that Solomon exhibited during the early years of his reign. Because Solomon wanted to do what was right. He wanted to do this the right way. He did not assume that he had all the answers at this young age that he was at. And he readily admitted that if he was going to do this well, he would need wisdom from God. That's what he admitted. He's like, if I'm going to do this well, I'm going to need God's help. I'm going to need him to intervene. Love what it tells us in 1 Kings 3.9. It says, this is Solomon praying before the Lord. He says to the Lord, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this? Your great people. He's just thinking about the enormity of the task that's been put before him. And so you have the Lord appearing before Solomon. He appears before Solomon in a dream, and he offers Solomon to give him anything that he asked for. Now, could you imagine if God offered you anything that you asked for? That is a, a dream come true for so many people, right? If you're given that opportunity, what would you ask for? And so you have Solomon given this opportunity genuinely. The Lord doesn't qualify it in any way. He just says, what do you want? What do you want? I will give you what you want. What do you want to request of me? I know the task you've been given here. It's a big task. What do you want? What do you need? And Solomon looks to the Lord, and he asks for an understanding mind. He said, I, I want you to do something miraculous in my head. I want you to do something miraculous in my mind. I want to be able to think and see and perceive and understand things that I would not naturally be able to understand. I want to be able to discern between good and evil. I want to be able to govern your people with wisdom. That's what I want, Lord. And I look at that and I think, what a beautiful request. 
that a beautiful request? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if every leader prayed this way when they were assuming their role of leadership? I mean, could, could you just imagine the way that that would have an impact on nations and corporations and local churches and households? If anyone put in a position of leadership just came to the Lord, at the moment they took on that position of leadership and said, Lord, can you just give me an understanding mind? You help me see things the way you see things so that I treat people the way you treat people. That's basically what he was saying. And Solomon wasn't asking the Lord for anything natural, right? This was supernatural what he was asking him for. He was requesting a supernatural intervention into how his mind would work. Do you ever pray that? Can I just dare you to pray that way? I remember the first time I came across this scripture, I was 15 years old and I was sitting at my desk in my bedroom. And I used to just randomly open the Bible to different things and be like, all right, God, show me. It was like the, it was like the, I don't know, like turning the Bible into a game show or something. I was like, Lord, what will you show me today? And I'd open it up and I'd look. And I remember coming across this and I was like, oh, you wanted me to see this part. And I remember just eating it up. And I thought, wow. You, and with childlike faith, I remember just praying. I was like, all right, if you answered that for Solomon, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ask that for me. Lord, will you give me an understanding mind? Do you think the Lord minds if any of us pray that to him? Do you think if you ask the Lord, Lord, just please give me an understanding mind. Help me to see life, myself, my service, like everything that you put before me. Help me to see it the way you see it. Help me to understand things that I would not naturally understand. Do you think the Lord minds if we pray that? Of course he doesn't mind it. He loves when you and I pray that. That's what Solomon was asking here. He wanted to see things the way God sees things. He didn't want to have to rely on his own limited experiences. He also didn't want to have to rely on the limited experiences of his advisors as he was trying to make decisions. He was praying for wisdom that would be divinely graced into his life. And I think that's something that, that all of us should have a deep heart desire to possess. But if we're going to possess that, Scripture gives us some clues how that's actually obtained. I think it begins with prayer. You have Solomon here coming to the Lord and just praying in faith, Lord, will you open my mind to understand things from your perspective? Not the world's perspective. They always lead me wrong. But I want to see it the way you see it. So he begins with prayer. There's a few other scriptures that speak to this as well. One written down by Solomon. In Proverbs 9.10, Solomon wrote down, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Think about that. Tell me that's not the most countercultural verse you could ever read, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That is not how this world chooses to live, but if you and I want to understand the mind and the heart of God, that's something we need to internalize. It's talking about this reverence, this respect for the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, you have the Apostle Paul saying, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love how those verses go together with Solomon's prayer. Basically, it's teaching us to obtain the wisdom of God. We need to live in a trusting relationship with God. If we're not living in a trusting relationship with God, how are we going to understand the mind of God or obtain the wisdom of God? It wouldn't be possible. And if our lives and our ambitions conform to the same standard that this world idolizes, what ends up happening is we'll end up seeing life and people and circumstances the same way the world sees them. But if we trust in Jesus 
And if we live with reverence toward the power and the holiness of God, His Word promises that He's going to transform the way we think. He will change the way we think. We'll enjoy real discernment. We'll enjoy the opportunity and the privilege to be able to understand the will of God as we make decisions. And those decisions, likewise, are not going to impact just our lives alone. It's also going to, those decisions will also impact the lives of other people. And when the Lord heard Solomon pray this before him, Scripture reveals that the Lord was pleased that Solomon desired that kind of understanding. Solomon could have asked for wealth, could have asked for power, he could have asked for fame, but he didn't. He didn't ask for those things. Most people, if you really analyze what most people are praying for, you discover that most people, they mainly ask God to give them pleasures, comforts, or the esteem of this world. It's usually in one of those three categories, pleasures, comfort, or the esteem of this world. But that's not what Solomon prayed. Solomon knew he needed the mind of God more than he needed the treasures of this world. And by the way, we need the same thing. We need the mind of God more than we need the treasures of this world. And God was pleased with Solomon's request, and he told him that he would receive what he asked for, and he was also going to receive all the other things that he could have asked for but didn't. I love what Scripture tells us as it develops this story a little bit further. In 1 Kings 3, verse 10, it says, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. That's what the Lord promised to Solomon. And the Lord made good on this promise. Solomon was graced with wisdom, and his reign as king was prestigious, and it was powerful. He was also made one of the richest men that have ever walked this planet. And that was all great for a season. But one of the things you end up discovering in Solomon's life is that his life also demonstrated that the riches and the other trappings of this world, those things can actually become a snare for us that distract us from what life is really all about you have the Lord inviting Solomon. He's saying, look, Solomon, I'm going to bless you with the things here that you have requested. I'm even going to give you other things as well. But my desire for you is that you walk with me faithfully. And that's where Solomon got off track. The Lord invited Solomon to be a man who walked with him faithfully. He encouraged Solomon to, to keep his statutes and his commandments just as his father David had done. And again, God even told Solomon that his days upon this earth would be lengthened if he did this, but Solomon's life eventually, it, it went in a different direction. And from, if my math is correct, it appears that Solomon lived about 10 years less than his father as a result of that. When you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, it says, for when Solomon was old, his wives, and he, had a, he married a whole bunch of wives from different backgrounds and from different nations, making these political alliances, and they worshiped these false gods, and then they had this influence on Solomon. It said, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. 
So it makes a contrast here. And it's worth noticing, even though there's a lot of positive things you could say about Solomon, it's worth noticing that eventually, later in life, his life got off track. Now, here's the thing. I don't know how your life on this earth began, what your context was like at that time, or the things that you've endured during the, the course of your days, leading you up to the point that you're at right now. But regardless of whatever's come in the past, wouldn't it be nice to finish well? You know, whatever's come in the past, that's there. It is what it is. Wouldn't it be nice to finish well? David finished well. David had some bumpy roads, but he finished well. Solomon did not. So David finished well, Solomon didn't. And what about us? How do we want our lives to be remembered? I mean, if you're a young person, do you think it's too soon to start thinking about that stuff? I don't think it's too soon. Recently came across the obituary of a man named Harry Stamps. Now, I could, I could read the whole thing to you, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. Might be worth checking it out, though. It's not hard to find online. But I came across this, and I enjoyed this obituary very much. By the way, the older you get, the more you read obituaries. But it's kind of weird. It seems cryptic, right? Don't be weird like me. But this is, this is interesting. Mr. Stamps, he actually passed away back in 2013, so it's, it's been a decade. And I think it was his daughter who took the time to eulogize him. And these are a few remembrances that she had of Harry's life. And in, her, in his obituary, this is what she said. She said, he had a lifelong affair with deviled eggs. He loved lane cakes and boiled peanuts, Vienna sausages on saltines. I have not tried that. Has anyone tried that? I'm game. I'm game. He loved them. He loved his homemade canned fig preserves, pork chops, turnip greens, and this is a statement here. I'm just trying to picture how this one worked in my mind, but she said, he also loved buttermilk served in martini glasses garnished with cornbread. That was what he liked. She said, Harry took fashion cues from no one. His signature everyday look was all his. A plain pocketed t-shirt designed by the fashion house Fruit of the Loom. His black label elastic waist shorts worn above the navel and sold exclusively at, at the Sam's Club on Highway 49. And a pair of old school wallabies, she said, who can even remember where he got those, that were always paired with a grass-stained MSU baseball cap. Styling. Finally, the family asks that in honor of Harry, that you write your congressman and ask for the repeal of daylight savings time. (laughs) Harry wanted everyone to get back to using the Lord's time. (laughs) That's how his obituary ended. I thought, that's hilarious. She should go into, like, that should be a side job, right? Writing stuff like that. And I read that, I was like, man, I appreciate that family sense of humor. That, that was just so funny to me. But even in the humor, this is what I'm noticing. And maybe you thought about this a little bit too. When you look at that, would, would she have written that if, if they didn't love Harry? She loved Harry. They loved that guy, right? They loved that guy. He was obviously a character. And I actually looked at that and I thought it was a good reminder that our lives actually do make an impact in this world, even if you don't think that it is. Even little things that you're doing are being noticed by other people. They're filing it away. Your little quirks, your little habits, 
the little things you say that encourage them, that point them to Jesus. We're, be, we're given a reminder, even in something like that, that our lives do make an impact in this world. We will leave a legacy. Whether you're trying to or not, you will leave a legacy. And it's either going to be a legacy of walking with Jesus and taking his word seriously, or it won't. If you want to put a dividing line in it, it'll either be a legacy of, of walking with Jesus and taking his word seriously, or it won't. But it'll be something. It'll either be a legacy of genuine faith being expressed through serving others, or it's going to be a legacy wasted on frivolities and things that don't matter and missed opportunities. And I don't think the Lord is giving us this opportunity so that we would waste it. By God's grace, my prayer for us is that we will leave a legacy of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. There is no greater thing that could be said of you and me when our earthly days conclude other than we knew Jesus and we walked with him daily. And what a privilege it is for that to be the testimony that our lives leave. I love the fact that, and I'll say this as we finish up our, our series looking at David's life, and I just wanted to draw a little contrast for us. What was said of Solomon, what was said of his father. One of those two things will be said of us. We will either finish well walking with Jesus, or we won't finish well because we chose to walk the way of this world. And my encouragement for us is to remember that contrast and to remember that example and to actually be intentional about our walk with Christ, knowing that it's going to have a direct impact on the lives that we interact with and the people who daily, who daily observe us and, and see us and are deciding on the pattern of their life based on what they see going on in ours. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this today and to see the contrast that you show to us in it. Lord, we're just so thankful for the fact that you give us the privilege to walk with you. you you're not trying to operate as God at a distance. You're, you're right here in our midst. You, you tell us that your promise is to be with us all our days. And you invited those who came before us to walk with you, and some did and some didn't. You're inviting us in the same way, and some of us will and some of us won't. Lord, we recognize that most people in this world just live for themselves. Most people in this world just go about their day-to-day -day life consumed with their own selfish desires. We understand that that is the way of this world, and that's what most people pursue. And they do that right from the, their earliest days right to the grave paying no mind to you, paying no mind to eternal things, paying no mind to the fact that you truly desire to transform us and give us a brand new way of thinking and living. You desire to give us a brand new life where you forgive us of our sin, help us to walk with you in holiness, and help us to look forward to the future knowing that there may be some nice things that you give to us on this side of heaven, but when we're in your presence in eternity, that's when we're really going to see the most wonderful things. Lord, we're just so grateful for that. And we're grateful that you give us an opportunity to taste some of those things now. I often think, Lord, when we're gathered together like this, worshiping you, that this is a taste of eternity. This is a taste of 
what our heavenly reality is going to be like, fellowship with others who love you, opportunity to sing together and pray together, opportunity to enjoy each other's company. Lord, it's a wonderful thing, and we're grateful for the community of the church that you've established, and the only reason we're united to one another is because of the union we have to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, thank you for facilitating that. Thank you for making that possible. Father, I pray that if there be anyone in my hearing right now who does not know you through your Son, Jesus Christ, who, have, who has never trusted in Jesus to save them of their sin, who's never received the gift of salvation that's freely offered through your Son who came to this earth to sacrificially serve us, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that they would receive that gift of forgiveness that you offer through Jesus. I pray that today would be the day that they receive new life through your Son, and that their perspective completely changes. Lord, thank you so much for helping us to see things supernaturally that we could never see with our natural eyes. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege to celebrate your presence right here with us today. We love you, Lord, and we pray that by your grace that you would establish a legacy of faith through the lives that you're allowing us to live. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.